0: Welcome to episode number 13 of Calm History. This is a spotlight episode featuring Florence Nightingale and the Crimean War. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. Today's episode is about Florence Nightingale. She was given the huge challenge of improving the medical care of soldiers who were wounded in the Crimean War. The conditions of these medical hospitals will shock you. I'll begin by telling you about the Crimean War and the specific conditions that these wounded soldiers were subjected to. You'll also learn about the curious chain of events that resulted in Florence Nightingale coming to their rescue. And I'll finish with the impressive list of accomplishments that Florence Nightingale achieved over her entire life. Achievements that brought better health care and social reform to many people around the world. A special note to my Soak Plus members. I've started writing the script for Part 3 of Titanic 360, so stay tuned for more testimonials from the captain, the crew, many of the passengers, reporters, and investigators of the Titanic collision. If you are not a Silk Plus member yet, then just use the link in the episode notes to get free access for a limited time to all the bonus episodes of Calm History and 400 other episodes. Okay, time to begin today's historical tale. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. Florence Nightingale and the Crimean War, the birth of modern nursing. To best understand the role of Florence Nightingale in history, it is best to begin with the Crimean War and the care of the wounded soldiers. For many years, in the early 1800s, Russia was posturing to invade Turkey. Controlling Turkey would give Russia a strong economic and military advantage. Both of these countries bordered the Black Sea. Russia occupied most of the northern shore and Turkey occupied much of the southern shore. Finally, in 1853, Russia began to invade some Turkish lands and the two countries were at war. Soon after, England, France, and Sardinia joined the Turks in their fight against Russia. In September 1854, 50,000 Allied troops landed on the north shore of the Black Sea, ready to fight the Russians. This area of Russia was the Crimean Peninsula, the namesake of the Crimean War and the location of many battles. Shortly after landing, the Allies gained their first victory over the Russians. A great shout of joy went up all over England. Victory, victory, cried old and young. The whole country went mad with joy, and for a short time, no one thought of anything except glory. After a little time, though, The stories of the men who perished and were wounded also reached England. The sounds of celebration soon mingled with the sounds of sorrow and grief. The wounded weren't just dying on the battlefields. They were dying from the poor medical care they received from their own personnel. In addition, They were also suffering from inadequate supplies like medicine, bandages, food, and clothing. Crimea was a poor area, and there were few supplies from the local area to be scavenged or seized. Whatever supplies there might have been had already been grabbed up by the Russians. The English had to rely on supplies coming from home, but the entire management of the supply chains was in chaos. Food, clothing, and medical supplies had been sent out from England in great quantities, but most of these couldn't be found. Or, once they were found, the supplies were inaccessible or unusable. When the boots for the soldiers made it to Crimea, it was reported that they were all for the left foot. Some supplies were stored in warehouses, which no one had authority to open. Some supplies had been stowed in the holds of vessels, but other things had been piled on top of them so that they couldn't be reached. Some were actually rotting at the wharves, Due to the lack of orders for the dispersal, the tinned meats sent out from England had basically turned to poison. Medical supplies needed for the wounded arrived, but were left to rot or were found lying useless in the holds of ships. Basically, the surgeons had no bandages and the doctors no medicines. Without the proper supplies, the medical personnel were unable to provide adequate care. The entire medical system for the sick and wounded soldiers was in total disarray. The eyes and the souls of the medical personnel were tortured by the sights of suffering all around them. There were unsanitary conditions of the camps, the lack of proper food, clothing, and fuel, and the wretched hospital arrangements. The result was a high mortality rate of the soldiers. When the sick were put on ships to go to the hospitals, up to 25% died on some of those seven-day voyages. For those who arrived alive to the hospitals, recovery was the rare exception. In some cases, 80% of those who underwent amputations died of hospital gangrene. One historian gave the following estimates about the total losses in the Crimea. Out of the total loss of about 21,000 soldiers, about 18,000, or 86%, died in a hospital, not on the battlefield. Almost half the entire fighting force died in hospitals during the first seven months of war. The London Times printed these eyewitness statements from their war correspondent for all of England to read, Quote, It is now pouring rain. The skies are black as ink. The wind is howling over the staggering tents. The trenches are turned into flowing rivers. In the tents, the water is sometimes a foot deep. Our men don't have warm or waterproof clothing. Not a soul seems to care for their comfort or even for their lives. These are hard truths, but the people of England must hear them. They must know that a London street beggar leads the life of a prince compared with the British soldier who are fighting out here for their country. The commonest accessories of a hospital are wanting, There is not the least attention paid to decency or clean linen. The stench is appalling. The fetid air can hardly struggle out to taint the atmosphere. For all I can observe, these men die without the least effort being made to save them. The men who brought them, with care and tenderness, are not allowed to remain with them. There they lie. In the same sorry state as when they arrived, not getting the proper care they need. The sick appear to be tended by the other sick, and the dying are attended by those who are also dying. The hospitals lacked doctors and were totally devoid of nurses. There were a few rare male orderlies but they weren't properly trained at all. How did this happen? When the war broke out, the military authorities didn't want female nurses. It was decided that things would go better without them. The quality of nurses at that time in England was a very poor one. The war department decided that this kind of nurse would do more harm than good. That may have been true, but that just meant England was long overdue to improve the way that they trained nurses. France had a much better system for training nurses than England did. They were called the Sisters of Mercy, and they provided great care and comfort to the soldiers. England had waited for a crisis to prompt the change. And now, it had arrived. The war correspondent for the London Times continued to witness and report the horrors he saw. Day after day, he wrote reports and sent them to England, telling what he saw and what was needed. Another article in the London Times continued to bring his concerns to the people. Quote, Are there no devoted women amongst us, able and willing to go forth to minister to the sick and suffering soldiers in the Crimea? Are there none of the daughters of England, at this extreme hour of need, ready for such a work of mercy? France has sent forth her sisters of mercy unsparingly, And they are right now by the bedsides of the wounded and the dying French soldiers. Must we fall so far below the French in self sacrifice and devotedness? The people of England understood that the English hospitals in the Crimea were overflowing with sick, wounded, and dying English soldiers. They understood how French soldiers were getting better treatment in the French hospitals. As a result of this increasing awareness, a great cry of anger and sorrow went up from all of England. This cry was turned into a trumpet call that rang in the ears of the women of England. It was also heard by Sidney Herbert, the head of the war department in England. He heard, with deep distress, the dreadful tidings of suffering that came from Crimea. Yes, England needed to train and send nurses to that desolate land to tend to the sick, wounded, and dying. But the important question was, who should lead them? What one woman had the strength, the power, the wisdom, and the tenderness to meet and overcome the terrible conditions in the Crimea? Mr. Herbert knew the answer without a moment's hesitation. Florence Nightingale. He knew her well. She was a friend of himself and his wife. He had asked her before to help him plan and manage their hospitals and homes for sick children. He knew that she possessed all the qualities needed for this work. So who was Florence Nightingale? She was born on May 12, 1820, and was educated by her father. She was a brilliant student. And easily learned history, mathematics, Italian, classical literature, philosophy, and data analysis. By the age of 17, she knew she wanted to devote her life to the service of others. And it was around the age of 22 when she decided to enter the field of nursing. She traveled to Italy, Greece, in Egypt gathering experience and informal training in medical care. At the ages of 30 and 31, she received informal and formal medical training in Germany at the very first school for nurses. In 1853, at the age of 33, she became the superintendent at a healthcare institute in London. She held this position until she received a greater calling to help the English soldiers in the Crimean War. The head of the war department wrote to her asking if she would undertake this monumental task. He asked her if she would take a group of nurses to Turkey and take charge of the hospital nursing there. He assured her That she would have full power and authority. Ironically, she had also written to him at the same time to offer her help. Their letters had crossed in the mail. The War Office soon proclaimed that Florence Nightingale had been appointed by the government to the office of Superintendent of Nurses. They had undertaken the work of organizing and bringing nurses to the wounded soldiers. The War Office also stated that she was a lady with greater practical experience of hospital administration and treatment than any other lady in the country. The London Times reported this proclamation with great support of her intellect, training, and medical skills and knowledge. However, some people still thought that women and nurses would be useless in a military hospital. They also voiced their objections. Regardless, Florence Nightingale selected 38 nurses in just a few days and departed on October 21, 1854. Thirteen days later, they arrived at Skatari Hospital in Turkey. It was a barracks hospital built for the wounded soldiers to get medical care and also for them to live in. It was a large structure with an open court in the middle and housed about 2,000 soldiers. There were seven other English barracks hospitals, also Overflowing with wounded soldiers, but Scutari Hospital would be the headquarters for Florence Nightingale. In those days, there was no Red Cross, no field medics, no first aid to the injured before they were transported off the battlefields. The wounded were taken as they were, directly from the battlefields on the Crimean Peninsula. Then, they voyaged south in a ship for several days across the Black Sea to the Skatari Hospital in Turkey. Often, they had had no food and were tortured by fever and thirst on their journey. Upon arrival, they would walk, drag themselves, or be dragged up a hill to the barracks hospital. In the early months of the war, it was reported, There were no vessels for water or utensils of any kind, no soap, towels or cloths, no hospital clothes. The men lying in their uniforms, stiff with gore, And covered with filth to a degree and of a kind no one could write about. Their persons were covered with vermin, which crawled about the floors and the walls of the dreadful den of dirt, pestilence, and death. The hospital had about 2,000 soldiers, but only 14 bathtubs. One of Miss Nightingale's assistants wrote, How can I ever describe my first day in the hospital? The soldiers arrived with their wounds and frostbite after traveling for days. Where were they to go? There were no available beds. They were laid on the floor one after another till the beds were emptied of those dying of cholera and other diseases. Many died immediately after being brought in. Their moans would pierce the heart, and the look of agony on those poor dying faces will never leave my heart. They may well be called the martyrs of the Crimea. End quote. There were some doctors and some untrained male orderlies but way too few. The conditions grew so frightful that a kind of paralysis seemed to fall on the minds of these men. They felt that the task was hopeless, going about their duties like people in a nightmare. The untrained orderlies were rough, unfeeling, and drank brandy to dampen their feelings. The air of the wards was so polluted as to be stifling. The bedsheets were of canvas and so coarse that the wounded men begged to be left in their blankets. There was no furniture and empty beer or wine bottles served as candlesticks. The kitchen was rough, nothing like a modern hospital kitchen. The men cooked their own food in thirteen large copper pots. Meat and vegetables were put in the same pots, then taken out when a soldier guessed that they were cooked. Part of the food to feed the sick would be raw and other parts would be overcooked. Some laundry was done by hired contractors. These men washed bed linens and clothes From all the infected and non infected soldiers in the same load. The soldiers also knew that these contractors were stealing some of their clothes, so they figured it better to keep wearing the same dirty clothes every day. There were no official military or government inspections of these facilities at this time, so England would have remained unaware of these conditions without the newspaper reporters. Florence Nightingale was not only greeted by these horrid conditions, but the male doctors and male orderlies were not keen to have a woman tell them what to do. Only 24 hours after her arrival, a new batch of wounded soldiers began to arrive. Soon followed by even more, every inch of the hospital was full. Hundreds of men were lying on the muddy ground outside, unable to find room even on the floor of the hallways. The team of newly arrived nurses had no time to rest or to create an ideal work system. Regardless. Florence Nightingale began to give her orders. She began directing where the sufferers were to be taken, what doctor was to be summoned, and which nurses were to attend them. During these early days, she was known sometimes to stand on her feet twenty hours at a time, seeing that each man was put in the right place to receive the right kind of care. After being at the hospital for six days, one of the nurses wrote home to England, We haven't seen a drop of milk, and the bread is extremely sour. The butter is most filthy. It is in a state of decomposition, and the meat is more like moist leather than food, we are still waiting for potatoes to arrive from France. It does appear absolutely impossible to meet the wants of those who are dying of dysentery and malnutrition. Out of the four wards committed to my care, eleven men have died in the night simply from lack of food, which, humanely speaking, might have been stopped could I have laid my hand at once on some nourishment. The whole of yesterday was spent first in sewing the men's mattresses together and then in washing them. We also assisted the surgeons when we could in dressing ghastly wounds and giving them comfort as best as these conditions allow. End quote. It was noticed that the surgeons would often decide which patients were too hopeless for surgery. These wounded would then be cast aside to die on their own. Florence Nightingale tended to these men, feeding, washing, and treating them over the course of a day or two. She would then bring these rejuvenated men back to the amazed surgeons who often decided they were now worthy of surgery. She even convinced many doctors to stop reusing infected rags and tossing them carelessly into a pile on the floor. By the 10th day of their arrival, Florence Nightingale had also established a more suitable kitchen. Men were fed with food, more suitable to their conditions, such as beef tea, chicken broth, and jelly. She achieved this by bringing her own food supplies rather than relying on food from the military suppliers. She also improved the laundry service by hiring a house close to the hospital. But each man usually only had one shirt so they were concerned about being without clothes during laundry time. She had anticipated this, and she had brought 10,000 new shirts with her. She aimed to keep them in clean clothes, so she was now overseeing the weekly cleaning of over 500 shirts and other garments. Her supplies of food and clothing wouldn't last forever. She knew she also needed to learn how to access and manage the military supply system. She soon discovered the chaos of military red tape. Getting supplies from a warehouse on the wharf was a huge challenge. She needed to consult the wharf manager who needed to consult the board which took several days to assemble them all together. Most of the time, she did her best to adhere to the slow-moving military red tape, but it frustrated her when it took days to get vital supplies to the wounded soldiers. Overall, Nightingale organized the cleaning of the entire hospital, improved the acquisition And management of supplies, and implemented hygienic procedures such as hand-washing to prevent the spread of infection. The soldiers clearly saw all these benefits and began to call her the Angel of the Crimea. She was also called the Lady with the Lamp because she often checked up on the wounded soldiers at night. Back in England, the people were hearing about her great success. They supported her with cheers, praise, and most importantly, supplies for the soldiers. They bought, donated, or made with their own hands shirts, socks, sheets, blankets, bandages, and other supplies, and then sent them off to Florence Nightingale. Even the queen and nobility donated and shipped many items. In March of 1855, the British government sent the Sanitary Commission to Scutari Hospital to flush the sewers and improve the ventilation. Due to all the improvements since Florence Nightingale arrived, the death rate of the hospital was reduced from 42% to just 2%. In May of 1855, less than a year after arriving in Turkey, Florence Nightingale sailed north across the Black Sea to bring more improvements to the hospitals that were on the Crimean Peninsula. In about 10 months, the Crimean War came to an end. Several months later, in August of 1856, Florence Nightingale returned to England. Back at home, she is bestowed with honors, but she also continues to make great accomplishments to nursing and other fields. For her pioneering work in army and hospital statistics, Nightingale was elected the first female member of the Royal Statistical Society in 1858 and the first female fellow in 1860. In 1859, she published the book, Notes on Nursing which laid the foundations of professional nursing. In 1860, she established her nursing school at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. It was the first secular nursing school in the world and is now part of King's College London. Beginning in 1866, and thanks to Nightingale, Nurses were formally appointed to military general hospitals across the world. Nightingale continued to make a difference throughout the rest of her life. She continued to promote and organize the nursing profession at home and in other countries. She continued to reduce peacetime deaths in the army Improved the sanitary design of hospitals and homes, advocate for better hunger relief in India. Helped to abolish prostitution laws that were harsh for women. Increased the acceptance of females in the workforce. And published 200 books, pamphlets, and reports. In 1883, she was the first recipient of the Royal Red Cross, an honor bestowed on her by Queen Victoria. In 1907, she was the first woman to receive the Order of Merit. In 1910, at the age of 90, Florence Nightingale passed peacefully in her sleep, leaving behind one of the richest and most revered legacies in the history of nursing. So, do remember her on International Nurses Day. It is celebrated every year on May 12, because that is her birthday. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed this spotlight episode of Calm History, if you'd like to get access to all the extra bonus episodes of Calm History, then please do become a Silk Plus member, and you can do that by using the link in the episode notes. Thank you for even considering it.